Hey, g'day there, fellow humans. Mark Lebusky for the Simply Practically Human podcast. My guest today is the CEO, or as she said, Chief Bottle Washer and everything else of Bold HR, Rebecca Horton, who I worked with back in my time at Australia Post. First met Beck there, and um, she now does some amazing work out running her own business in uh, the space of working and leveling up what she calls the B-suite, that level below the C-suite that don't get as much love as they really need in order for organisations to function as well as they possibly could. So have a listen. There's some amazing um, stories in here. And uh, Beck absolutely nails simplicity and practicality. We'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark Labusque talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. Hey there, fellow humans. I'm delighted to be joined by the CEO of Bold HR, Rebecca Horton. Rebecca, thanks for joining me. My absolute pleasure, Mark. This came about, I reckon, about three weeks ago. I, out of the Australian one weekend, I read this article about the frustrations of middle management. And I just posted it up. I circled it and I put it up there and just made a comment about, you know, piss your people off and this is what you get. And it had 85,000 likes and views and then a whole lot of people sharing it. And the first thing I thought of was, I now need to talk to someone about this. And you were the very first um, human being that came to mind. So thank you for joining me. So we're going to get into that. But but the place we start, and I'm, I don't know what's going to happen here. But I'm going to get you to share from way back in our days working at Aussie Post together, your first impressions of said Mark LaBusque. <laughs> oh, shit. I love, I love the danger zone there. I love it. All right. So I, I, I confess you gave me a bit of a heads up about this. So I was having a think about it because it was years and years ago, 10, 15, yep. like a long time ago. And I can remember that your, there were two things that you led with. <laughs> One was your conviction. And there was heaps of it. And the other one was your muscles. And that's not changed. <laughs> I think neither of those things have changed. Well, wait. So lots of conviction. And I can remember that you had a really different take on what it meant to kind of connect, inspire, and motivate people. And even back then, when you weren't working exclusively in leadership, your application to leadership was huge. And I can remember you sketching up for me a really early draft of what has now become this brilliant business of yours. Do you remember when that was? Can you remember doodling it at work? I can because I used to doodle it quite a bit. I'm actually looking at a copy of it in a frame here, the very first one I ever did, which I kept, and it's all dog-eared and whatnot. But, yeah, the word trust was in the middle, and then there was all of these other weird things around it. And I do remember our first catch-up because do you want me to have a go now on my first impressions? Oh, God, I didn't realise it went both ways. Oh, surely not, (laughs) bloody hell. And I know you're up for this. Um, The first thing for me – Take this the right way. You were a little bit scary, uh, and what I mean by that is that. And when I look at this more, it was more about me than you, because what had happened at the time we we'd found out that there was all these like super superb experts coming to join the organisation in all parts of the business, and I think I was a bit like, oh shit, like she's saying exactly what she thinks, because usually you don't get that. It's like people will come in and they'll dance around a bit, but you were just like going bang, bang, bang. And I'm thinking, oh shit, this is like, this is real. But it only took me about 10 minutes to go, I love this and I want more of it. So I think we we caught up a lot, but you're, you were knowledgeable and opinionated 
in the very best of ways. It's like, I'm going to share my opinion with you now, without fear nor favor, but I'm just going to tell you what I think. And it was coming from a place of good intention. So that was it for me. Now, it took me about 10 minutes to get past being scared. And then it was like, we, we hung out a lot, I reckon. We did. Yeah, we did. And and look, you know, when I look back on my leadership career, that reaction is not unique. And it's certainly something that I made a decision to work on. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think there were, there were some moments where I didn't really mind being scary, but then there were lots of moments where I really did mind. And certainly that that ability to give people what you really think between the eyes and to tell them the honest truth. I really had to temper that with the fact that I was coming from a place where I wanted them to grow and I wanted them to succeed. But my delivery was a bit crap sometimes. So, you know, <laughs> definitely went on a bit of a journey of reinvention myself, which was really hard uh, and chose to do it at post rather than leave, which is what most people do, right? You, you quit your job, you turn up somewhere else and you're the new shiny version of yourself. I actually did it at post and, and watched my 360s change over two years through some pretty hard work, actually. And mm. it's the hardest work we get to do. Well done for sticking with it because it is easier to walk away and just go, I'll turn mm. up at the next place and everyone's like, oh, look at this. And then all of a sudden mm. they go, oh, shit, some things yeah. that don't really, oh. But good on you. And I think that's how I, my sense is going to be it's helped you to get to where you are now, which is not just the CEO, but as you said to me before the episode, Chief bottle washer and everything else for for the business. <laughs> How good is it when you um when you're running your own business and you get to just do all the things that when you worked in a big business you had all of these other people. What what? How do you feel about that? Oh, you know, it's actually hilarious. So every time somebody asks me, "How shall I introduce you?" You know, is it the MD? Is it the CEO? Is it the founder? I still go, oh, I don't really know. So it, there's a peculiarity to it when you're when you're a big business of one and a half people. <laughs> but the one thing that really struck me, really struck me, is how much more strategic you have to be when you're responsible for the whole kit and caboodle, right? Yep. The direction, the risk taking, the investment levels, the products, the pricing, the people, you know, the everything. Very, very suddenly you realize that however amazingly senior your career may have been in a big organization, you were lucky if you did real strategy once a year. Yep. Whereas I think in a small business, you're doing it once a week all the time, really. I mean, every decision has got pretty material strategic implications and they're really personal back pocket implications. So, you know, the rubber, the, the skin's in the game all the time. Um, yeah. So I think it's a totally different ball game. It's a really much better ball game. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I think there's always that story of every decision you make, like you said, is going to impact on that, on that back pocket. Hey, we're going to mm -hmm. talk today. This is a cool topic about the B suite, as you call it, or sort of the middle managers. And I reckon that there's so much gold and so much expertise you have here. But before we go there, um, I love the listeners to get the human the real human side. So it'll give people a sense of how you've landed where you are. Give us some of, and as much as you want here, Beck, as much of your backstory, back, back your backstory <laughs> as you'd like to give us. I didn't even rehearse that. That's great. I know. <laughs> but that you'd like to give us just to set up things before we get into that lovely work you do. Mm, okay. So I'm the oldest of three sisters. And um, please never ask my sisters what they think of me. It won't be good. <laughs> and we are actually terribly close, despite the fact that I'm a horrible bossy big sister. I grew up in Africa and the Middle East. My dad was self-employed mostly, and he was one of those people who 
took the risk reward ratio to the extreme. I can remember in the 70s and 80s when we're living in pretty volatile places, he'd come home either well with a suitcase full of cash, like literally cash money, or he'd get stuck behind the lines somewhere in very scary places like Tanzania in the 70s and Damascus in the 80s. So pretty stressful, but quite a colourful background. We've been shuffled between friends' houses when he's been you know, almost kind of in prison in an unfriendly, hostile environment. And then we've been in marvellous palaces when, you know, the coin flips the other way. So I reckon that's why I've got a little bit of the the risk-taking entrepreneurial spirit. But I have to say, the whole guns and cases of cash thing, definitely not me. So my mum's popping up in there somewhere, keeping my feet well and truly on the ground. I've never heard anyone who said that their dad used to come home with a cases full of cash that's that's very that's a very yeah. interesting thing and so so growing up there what happened where did you sort of go to from there into the world of work or was there some university in there as well what happened mm-hmm. yeah yeah there was there was um uni at the university of birmingham where i went and did a really really vocational course mark history nice. and more history yeah because I really, really like reading stuff. And I figured if you love it, you'll do well at it. And it worked out just fine. But then, of course, you know, what kind of a proper job do you get as a historian? You either work in a library or you go and be a researcher. And I didn't really fancy either of those because I was completely broke and very bored of being broke. Um, so I, I had a crack at a PR scholarship for Guinness, which is a big, you know, beer company in the UK, which is where I'm from, which sounded brilliant. And I lasted about three weeks because it totally, utterly sucked. And then I went and got a job in a shoe shop and got sacked almost instantly. And then I went into recruitment because I'd run out of ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you get sacked instantly from the shoe shop? Oh, oh, I don't know. Feet, fingers, don't think they really go very well together. (laughs) (laughs) So you ended up in recruitment because there was nowhere else to go. Is that, that then sort of sent you on the pathway to where you are today? Yes. In a very strange way, it did. I think that... Um, being in recruitment and particularly in London in the capital markets when it was a candidate short market. So you were always incredibly careful and curious about what talent really wants. Taught me things about what makes and breaks great leaders, what makes and breaks great organizations, where performance really comes from in terms of people's attitudes over their capabilities. So it it really, I think, was an incredible um, stomping ground for learning about leadership. Yeah. Even before I realised that's what I was learning. Interesting, interesting. So you did that, and then we bumped into each other at some point along the way at, at Australia Post. You came in there in what capacity was your role there? My role there was the first head of recruitment that they'd ever had, and you know my my job was to kind of build something from scratch for them. And I think within about a year and a half that had morphed into more of a whole of talent exercise. And, you know, we ended up running everything from recruiting to internal mobility, to career development programs, to, you know, organizational change strategies, even outplacement and offboarding. And then the kind of the digital experience layer that sat underneath it all. So it snowballed pretty quickly and it certainly didn't even look in two years time the way it was meant to look when I walked on board in fact I dusted off my original position description at about year four and we all fell about laughing because I don't think it actually 
look like that after about a week, to be honest. <laughs> Surely that doesn't happen in the corporate world, that you come in for to do a role and then things change. It change for good reasons, eh? I think, because <laughs> you know a 200-year-old organisation would need a head of recruitment and then would realise that, geez, we, I think there's more to this human being than just recruitment. So obviously you, you shifted into something that was pretty big. Now, is this where you started to really get that curiosity around what was happening through the middle of an organisation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that really struck me when we when we built out this program called Post People First, which was a bit of a, a flagship program and uh, was, was terribly, terribly famous, not me, the program, one of the things that really, really struck me in this in this process of trying to create pathways for people's careers to move from a dying part of the business to a growing part of the business, the thing that broke it was middle managers. Yeah. And I went down the pathway that everybody else goes down, which is bash the middle managers. And then I had a really good look and I realized the thing that broke the middle managers were the senior managers. Yeah. And I think this isn't something that, that is just with Aussie Post. I think it's everywhere. It's this. It is everywhere. If I think about when I was in that space, I think I was always middle management anyway. But it's almost like you're you're locked up. They they, they let you out to do what you need to do, but then they sort of take you back at the end of the day and they put you back into the cage. Well, you can see a lot of things going on outside that. So let's get into this space. Um, your passion and your interest in unlocking the talent of let's call it the B suite or the middle managers. What 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 are we missing here? Do you think? Well, all right. I want you to I want you to imagine something, Mark. I want you to think about a roundabout. Yes. Okay. Right now, I personally think that roundabouts are one of the pinnacles of engineering design. I know that it's just a circle on the road, but the reason that it's brilliant is because once upon a time that roundabout was actually a really dangerous crossroads, and people used to just smash into each other. And then they added traffic lights, and then there were tailbacks everywhere. So the genius of a roundabout is that traffic flows smoothly. And you know, what I know, because I have seen it now, is that organizations where their B-suite are working well, you know, their middle managers are elevating and they're given the freedom to do their jobs properly, they're like a roundabout. Everything revolves around them smoothly. They make the operation of the business faster, more efficient, smarter. When they're not working, you know, it's a collision or a pileup or a tailback. Yeah. And that's what they get blamed for, right? They get blamed for this bureaucracy, for this paper pushing, for being a delaying mechanism in an organization. And actually it's it's more structural than it is capability. Of course, it's capability. And that's why we call our leaders the B-suite, because they are the ones that have elevated out of the middle management. The middle management has such a bad rap that we really wanted to make sure that great middle managers had a marker of difference. I told you there'd be questions without notice because when people start talking, I've like got a million things going through my brain. Mm-hmm. How one gets into middle management is usually via the display of technical competence. Mm-hmm. And then we put them in charge of human beings and we sort of go, off you go, good luck with that. We'll do some things and you get some development and stuff like that. Is that still the case Beck, are you still seeing that or is there something else at play now that, that is helping pick perhaps the right types of humans to go into these roles? Uh, look, I, I'd say 9.9% of the time, 9.9 out of 10 times, a mid-level leader has come up through that expert pathway. Yep. And there is this tipping point where 
like Marshall Goldsmith would say, what got you here won't get you there. And there is, for many mid-level leaders, a really difficult moment in their careers, and some of them never get past it, where they have to let go in order to move forward. They have to stop being who they were and become something that perhaps in their past they didn't particularly like or they had a bad relationship with or they've got lots of bad examples of how to be a senior leader. And if they are going to get past this really lumpy stage, which is middle management, you know, it's hideous, frankly, it's bad. It's a bad space to be. They have to let go of what got them there. And I would say left to their own devices, um, the stats that we're pulling together through the research we've been doing for four years now shows that about 80% of them don't. 20% of them do, another 20% of them hover, you know, put up with it. And the rest of them, you've got burnout, disruption, decay. Is this where levelling up starts to come into the play here? That, that for the ones that can level up, they're the ones that move from the the frozen middle into that B-suite? Am I getting that? Is that yeah. right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. We look at it in kind of three layers and there's, there's kind of two spaces where middle managers get stuck typically. The first one is when they don't shift from order taker mode. You know, when you're when you're kind of an early manager and you're you don't really have the confidence, you haven't won the trust of your organization, you haven't built your expert reputation, you don't really own your space. You're there to be told what to do and do it well. Yeah. Right. And that's okay. That's a, a, a level of experience. But if you don't move past that, you kind of stay in this order taker mode, which means that you get a reputation for being quite siloed, being quite reactive, you know, all those bad words that we apply to middle managers. So that's one of the big shifts is to, is to shift up. And the next shift is, is when you're at that next level, you don't make the break to the level above that. So we call it the kind of the circuit breaker space because it is a circuit breaker, right? You either go on a little further, go on a lot further, or you take a U-turn and you actually start to decline. Okay. And even historically good leaders can, for no obvious reason, start to be really disengaged and, you know, even become quite toxic over time. Yep. And the mystery of that is that they've been stuck in that circuit breaker stage for too long and their organization hasn't spotted it and known how to pull them out of it. What's the blind spot then for organizations? What are they not doing at the moment that that you can help them with in this space of what they're not seeing? Ah, uh, the blind spot historically for the last 30 years has been really simple, neglect. Okay. Yeah. So middle managers are not first-time managers, so they don't need manager training. You know, they're not executive managers, so they don't get executive MBA kind of investment. They actually get nothing. More than 80% of middle managers have never had a coach or a mentor. You know, 70 plus percent of them haven't been on a training course for years and years and years. So all they're doing is learning the bad habits of their C-suite, learning the bad habits from those around them, and having very, very little input into how to break out of these stages and move up to the next level. So neglect is what McKinsey calls it, right? Yep. And neglect, I have to agree, is what's been the problem for this cohort for 30 odd years. Mm. Well, I used to hear the term, particularly when you're in this space, it was like, put them in there and they'll sink or swim. And... I think a lot of them are treading water for a long time, but I imagine it like this. They're treading water fully clothed in a woolen jumper and they're, you know, every now and again they get their nose out of the water and they breathe again and they keep going. But it's, uh, it must be so frustrating for 
I guess for the loss of some really good potential if we neglect. And then where do they go? What, what do they leave the organisation or do they just stay there and put up with the thing or is there a bit of both going on here? There's a bit of both. So, you know, the ones that stick around go into survival mode and we've all heard of quiet quitting, right? They kind of, they pull back on that discretionary effort. They don't take risks. They don't put themselves out there. They just do the bare minimum and cut a check, right? And that kind of survivalism is really, really bad for their souls. They don't get anything out of that. Some of them can fester and go toxic and become quite vocally anti the organization. And of course, they get sacked in the end, which is really unfortunate because it didn't start with that. A lot of them started quite well. And, and a lot of them do leave. So at the moment, the, the engagement levels of middle managers is at the worst out of all levels of all organizations everywhere in the world. So B-suite leader burnout rates are almost 2.5 times greater than any other level. And the thing that's new, because this isn't exactly new, it's getting worse, but it's not new. What's new is the level of people leaving management, opting out of this career choice entirely. And what the, the big succession planning risk that I can see is that the new entrants to the workforce are taking one look at how hard it is to be a middle manager. You know, you're flogged between the workforce and the executive. You're right on the line of their conflicting requirements and demands. Yeah. And you're not really being kind of lauded as something special. Like you say, you get let out of the cage in the morning and put back again at night. So quite a lot of leaders and good quality, experienced, high-performing mid-level leaders are just saying, this is just not worth it. And they're opting out of management entirely. They're walking away from leading. And that's a problem because if they're not inspiring others to take their place, we're going to run out of managers. Wouldn't that be interesting if there's not enough managers around? Um, some people might think that's a delight, but others, I think it's, if you leave that hole, well, then who is going? Because it's a really important role. You just said it before. This is one of the things that really stuck with me being in that space is you've got so many audiences to put the show on for every time. It's like 24-7 on stage. So you've got, you're managing up. Yep. You're managing at peer level. And at peer level, everybody knows that there's a, it's a pyramid and there's few places above. So it's like, it's not always <laughs> playing well in the sandpit together and sharing <laughs> toys. And then, yeah. and then almost I think about it this way. I remember managing my people and thinking, I don't know if some days whether I'm a counsellor or a manager or maybe a bit of both and, and then some other things. So there's so many roles that these people play, don't they? And I'm, I'm, it's not uncommon now, as you're saying, for people to leave it. How much has the pandemic had to do with that as well? Pandemic's added another flavour to it, right? So it is unquestionably easier to manage people when they're right in front of you. So having remote leadership means that you've got really fragmented leadership. You can't lead en masse. You've really got to make it much more personal. That takes more time and you're not getting more time in your diary, you're getting less. Uh, the other thing that I think has really ramped up is the level of intimacy in the relationship that you have with your people. So like you said, you used to be kind of part counsellor, part manager. Now the, the level of counselling going on I think because we've all been in each other's lounge rooms for so many years now, yep. we're, we're bringing it all. We're bringing the divorce and the, you know, the illnesses and the cancer scares and the everything, everything to work, to the person that we trust to care about us and to look after us. And very suddenly, 
the boundaries of work and life have totally vanished and you've got a role to play on both sides where you never really did before. And that's that's doing people. Oh, absolutely. So just on that, what 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 are the more progressive organizations doing there then in that space to equip these human beings to be able to facilitate some of those roles that they're now additional roles they're now taking on? So there are some really good ones out there, particularly in the interestingly, in the not-for-profit space. So one of the things that I'm really spotting with a couple of clients I work with is the level of investment in recognizing that their needs are totally unique and not just their learning needs, but the way they want to learn is totally unique. They are not into classroom training. They don't want to be patronized. They want peer-to-peer learning. They want exposure. They want experiences. So that's a, a big difference. The other space that they're really starting to recognize is workload. So a lot more pressure through the center to kind of get the workforce to lift up a little bit. Because what we're finding is that because our senior executive have to delegate responsibility because of the speed of business, right? They can't make all the decisions. They're too slow. So they're pushing that down to the B-suite. They're expecting the B-suite to be more decisive, make more decisions, bigger risks. At the same time, our workforce are kind of eschewing that because they don't love what they're seeing. So they're pulling away. And the gap that the B-suite are having to fill gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So really smart organizations are starting to see that and are starting to think about layers and levels and training those beneath the B-suite to make sure that they release a little bit of capacity for them to do what has become a more time-consuming job better. And that really sits in the space of empowerment. Yeah, where I do stacks of training. But that starts with the C-suite, not with the B-suite. Absolutely, because if I go back to that article, and as you just segued me beautifully into this piece, is that we want you to make more decisions at that level and make them quicker. But at the same time, we're not really involving you in the higher level stuff that gets us to make the decision. So here's the thing. We're a sense-making species. If these people can't make sense of why the decisions are being made, that then they, they then want them to make quick decisions on the decisions that are coming from the C-suite, what are organisations then facing when we run into that shit fight? <laughs> I'm glad you used That's two of the words I was going to use, shit fight. Look, you're, you're so 100% right. You know, there is still this sense of confidential conversations at the C-suite level, then direction to the B-suite for execution with no information. Yeah. And that is just a recipe for disaster because you've got you've got two reactions. One is the B-suite leader that makes shit up and gets seen through quite quickly and distrusted. And the other one is the one that refuses to make shit up and therefore stands still. Yeah. Also unacceptable. So we're not setting them up for a middle way. So what is the middle way? So let's get to the the work that you do and, you know, I say simple and practical tools and tips that are going to help to unlock the, I hate to use this word, the potential of these um, human beings. What are three things that you would you could suggest that the uh, C-suite can do to, to open this up? Yeah, so I think, I think number one is have a good hard look at your trust levels. Yep. You know, and be quite ruthless with yourselves because, of course, your natural reaction is to say, of course, I'm trusted. PwC would beg to differ. You're not, and you've got to work on that. So one is actually have proper conversations, ask them their opinion, and actually 
listen. Uh, there is so much cynicism about what, what the B-suite brings to the table, you know, where their agenda sits, et cetera, et cetera. And the C-suite have got to remember that they need their B-suite to be a double agent. They, their B-suite has to represent the workforce and the executive in equal measure or the whole organizational structure falls in a heap. You know, Google's project Oxygen proved that. We need them to translate. So we actually need to treat those translators like a trusted inner circle person. And at the moment, the C-suite doesn't. The second then, once you've kind of built that trust, is to empower them. And that's another really confronting step for the C-suite because if, well, well, one, you have to do the first step because if they don't trust you, they're not going to take the risks that you've told them to. And I hear the C-suite complain about this all the time. You know, I've told them to be empowered and they're not taking accountability. So just on that, can I just ask you about that? I don't want to miss this bit. Yeah. I reckon that word empowered has lost its power because every bastard uses it and they just go, you're empowered now. So, but by the <laughs> way, you need to get those packet of Tim Tams that you bought signed off by me anyway. But that's, you know, that's, that's, at, the, <laughs> that's at the very other end. What does true empowerment yes, look like great. and feel like? Yes. The reason that there's so much confusion about empowerment and it has become one of those washy words, you know, weaselly, horrible words, is because there are actually two definitions. Right. So definition number one is feel empowered, lovely, 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 slightly fluffy. The other one is to be given power. Now, when the C-suite says you're empowered, they mean feel fluffy. Yep. And when the B-suite says I want empowerment, they mean give me power. Yes. And until we have one definition that rules them all, we're going to have this disconnect. I love that. I've never heard that explained so well because I have... um... I have a visceral reaction to when I hear people say, we're empowering our people. And I'm like, what are you doing? We're empowering them. What does it mean? Feel warm and fluffy. Yeah, I know. Good on you. Good on you. And what what do you reckon the third one? So empowerment's the second one. What's the third one? Yeah. So the third one then is in that empowerment one, I think there is the need for the C-suite to let go of decision-making and allow controlled risks to happen. And really that kind of links into the third one. So the third one is hold your C-suite to account. You know, if if they can't let their old assumptions go about middle managers and the capability and decision-making of middle managers, they won't let them into the tent. And if they don't let them into the tent, then their decisions will be rubbish because they're ignorant and kept outside, obviously. And if they don't relinquish control, they won't allow decisions to be made faster. And they're not really then empowering people at all. And then they'll complain that middle management isn't working and they have to do everything. And it's really because they're choosing to. So they basically are putting the traffic lights in where a roundabout should be. Oh, I, um, I often say this to people. I've said it today at a keynote I was doing, a virtual keynote. Sometimes people are like, well, we need to be involved in the next level down just in case things go wrong. And we need to be across stuff. And I'm like, I actually think you want to be involved just in case things go right and you're not there. So then you don't get to um, feel relevant and that you're contributing. And, and I, I just wonder this, the C-suite has come from the B-suite. Would that be a fair comment or not? They, they do. It's a very small percentage, but yes, that is where they come okay. from. To, with, with the exception of those that sidestep in from consulting, which is a slightly different kettle of fish. Got you. And there's quite a few of them that come in on that other super highway. Just with, with those human beings, and I say human beings because they are humans, and the consultant word is not one that 
you know, is a, is a is a popular one, but I think there's some good ones around. What do they need to be really conscious of when they come out from consulting world into this more, I'm going to say, human centric world? What 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 do they either miss or what do they need to keep an eye out for? Yeah, that's a great question. So look, I, th- I think when you come across from many, many years in consulting, so let's say you've done 10 plus years in consulting and you take that switch over to industry, there's a couple of things that are absolutely crucial to remember. It's a little bit like making your first move into a highly unionized environment. The rules are different. Mm. So the difference is that when you're in consulting, everything is a billable hour. So your ability to drive conversations about productivity in a tangible, measurable way is amazing. And may I say, it would be a dream to be able to measure personal productivity the way that you can if you're in a billable environment. But Mm. industry is rarely slash ever a billable environment. So your ability to talk about measuring productivity is really, really poor. And in fact, if you look around all of the big enterprises, you know, the banks, resources, logistics, any of those, if you ask them, what's your productivity per person? There is no way they'd be able to give you an answer. Yeah. And that's fundamentally a really different universe to move into from consulting where you do have an average productivity per person. Well, it's a huge adaptive challenge, isn't it? It's not like coming in and here's a here's the book that says how this all happens. This is about changing beliefs and behaviours, That's right. which I think is one of the, I think that could go for how we look at the B-suite as well. It's like, what are the beliefs we have about them and how does that then impact on the way we behave and how do we change that? So I'm guessing that's some of the work that you're doing then with with yeah. your clients. Yeah, yeah, it is. So some of the work that I do is, interestingly, I think you you talked about playing nicely in the sandpit. I actually run programs called Play Nice, I know, uh, which really is about the leadership teams and the dynamic in the leadership team, which often involves the C-suite and having a fairly firm private conversation with them about, what they're doing wrong and how they're setting this system up for failure. Then I do a lot of coaching work, a lot of mentoring. That's my flagship program with B-suite leaders and really building a community dedicated to them with learning experiences and content dedicated to them because their needs are totally different to everybody else. Uh, And then I will train them and their teams. Now, the reason that I do that is to really accelerate the impact that they can have and make them have more impact more easily. So it just really helps them to speed up the revolution that they're looking for or the transformation in their organization that they're looking for. So those really are the three things that I do, but every single thing is flavored to the B-suite. I don't do anything with brand new leaders. I don't do anything with, you know, special leadership groups. This is my whole and sole focus. Which I think is a great thing because you can, in this space, as you would know, you can be afflicted by the um, the observation of shiny things flying past your face. Oh, but I'll go and do that now and I'll do this. And I'll, So I think that this is great for people to know because it's, and I see this in my work too, is that we've got to look at humans as, I say unique ingredients. It's a bit like when you got a bowl of vanilla ice cream and that's the base and then you can put all these different ingredients in, but they're not all the same. So it's going to be different every time. How do you help organisations to see that? And do you believe that the uniqueness is something that's really important to take into account? Yes, yes and no. So um, with the work that I've done with B-Suite Leaders and all the research that we've got, it really shows that it boils down to a number of very, very common challenges that Often leaders join my program full of cynicism that 
all of these shared experiences are not going to be relevant for them. You know, they might go, well, I'm local government and we're different, or I'm resourcing and we're different. Uh, and within about three sessions, they send me an email to go, oh my God, I feel so amazing. Everyone's got the same problem as me. So there's that, you know, the, the ice cream. But then every individual has different circumstances. So when we look at their evolution through those layers that we talked about, those capabilities remain the same. But the way that you apply them in your individual circumstance, that's where the flavor really comes in. So the way we've designed our program is that it's a mixture of different ways of engaging so that people can get exactly what they need. So whether it's, you know, 10 modules of self-paced things you must know if you're going to make the shift from here to there. Yep. Monthly group coaching sessions so that you can learn from your peers and really drive conversations about what other people are doing listening to amazing keynote speakers from all around the world about really kind of lifting your thinking up a level, which is such a treat, or doing one-on-one coaching with me where we deep dive into exactly what's going on at work in some detail and work through strategies so that you can manage out of it. I love it. Um, So many um, commonalities. People say to me, you don't understand, Mark, I'm from um, local government. You don't understand, I'm from IT. What I love about what you said is, I reckon part of the key to this is starting to understand that other human beings, regardless of what industry sector that they're in, we've all got the same stuff going on pretty much. Although you then say you've got your unique circumstances and and I think that's a great way to break it down, which sort of brings me into the next bit here, which is about simplicity and complicated and complexity and these sorts of things. I reckon sometimes people like to try and they use those excuses to keep shit complicated and you don't get it and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> My view is that we can overcomplicate stuff when there are sometimes some pretty simple ways to look at things. What What's your view on, if you have this view, and you may have a counter view that humans try and overcomplicate the simple at times? Humans are quite obsessed with being clever, Ooh. right? And we love being experts. And most importantly, we friggin' love being right and we hate being wrong. So complexity is brilliant because you can never be wrong if the answer is always, it's complicated, right? Never. It's never, you know, it's never binary. So I think we hide in complexity. I think it's this beautiful camouflage that keeps us right at all times and makes us feel quite superior and fabulous. But, you know, having said that, is life simple? No. However, I think that there are systems, there are patterns And once you start to really observe and spot these repeatable patterns that are linked to relationships and how people make decisions and what motivates or demotivates people and, you know, whatever it is that that really are that human end of town, then we start to make it feel simple again. Because actually, when you break that down, there's probably, through the work that I'm doing at the moment, I think we've identified about six systems that are repeated over and over and over in what appear to be completely unique circumstances, but actually there's still a pattern of behavior and and thought. And once you start to spot those and predict those, you suddenly find that you're way more influential, you're way more poised, you're not finding work so overwhelming and unpredictable. In fact, you start having a bit of a game because you're like, oh, if I do this, will this happen? You're like, that's happened. How very interesting. So humans are still basic animals, right? We're nowhere near as smart as we think we are. So we're actually quite easy to manage and we're actually quite easy to motivate. 
So some of the fun that we have is actually learning how to do that. And it certainly makes a huge difference to how cool, calm and collected my leaders feel in the workplace. I I love it because I've seen this happen too, where they start to get it. They see the system and there's only, yeah, there's only half a dozen of them. You know, people ask me, oh, how, how different are we to the, you know what? And I go, well, you're not. Not at all. And then they're disappointed. They're like, oh. <laughs> but then when you start to go, well, well, this is what I'm seeing now, they go, oh, shit, well. And then they get it and then they can start to play within those systems and and all of a sudden it's not as, they don't have to be the smartest in the room because usually we were saying before about we hiding complexity, I think meetings are one way to hide in complexity. We just keep having more meetings so we yes. can keep hiding in them. Let's wrap it up with a bit more about you and where people can find you and how they can connect with you and work with you. Yeah, well, that is very, very kind. So I would say just go to boldhr.com and we're launching the B-Suite Benchmarks, which is a suite of benchmarking tools dedicated just to B-Suite leaders that will give people global comparisons to how they're going against other people. So a bit like what you were saying, you know, am I unique and different or am I actually quite similar? And where do I, where do I rate on my issues compared to where other people have rated themselves on their issues? So I would love for everyone to jump on and do that. But otherwise, just reach out to me if you're interested in mentoring, if you're interested in training, or you're interested in somebody banging the heads of your C-suite together, then I'd be delighted to be invited. And I know that you're very, not just delighted, but you'd be very capable of doing that as well. Hey, Rebecca, thanks for coming on. Great to chat again. It's been far too long and I hope we get to catch up. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. Hey, there were so many gems from that conversation with Rebecca. It's been about four or five years. I think we agreed at the end since we last spoke. And um, I loved it how she talked about how people never want to be wrong, so they'll hide in complexity. And we sort of talked a bit then about meetings. Perhaps meetings are great hiding places for those that are hanging on to complexity and the rightness and looking smart and all of those sorts of things. I loved the use of the roundabout to help really understand what's going on in organisations that are really performing well through that mid-level, through the B-suite, through the mid-level managers, is that everybody knows when to give way and that the traffic flows really smoothly, whereas in organisations where they haven't quite worked it out, there's still the old crossroads and it's quite dangerous when, when cars are heading into that area, particularly if traffic lights aren't working or the signs aren't being obeyed and there's a whole lot of collisions and it, it makes and breaks organizations through this middle part of of the business. No secret that trust is one of the keys that Rebecca said, that there needs to be conversations around trust between the C-suite and the B-suite in order to get opinions and also to understand what's going on, that these B-suiteers are in fact playing the role of a double agent with good intention, of course, and empowering them and using that. I loved it when she said that you can either feel empowered as in empower being a soft and fluffy word, which I think it's really turned into, or empowered meaning that you're given power. I think this is a really important point for you to think about is, are you actually giving your people the power to do what they need to do? Or are you telling them to feel empowered, but really not giving them anything and really still getting involved in what's going on? And the other one was holding the C-suite to account, this need to to really, really hold 
the C-suite to the account that they have, which is letting go, letting the work get done where the work's done best, rather than saying they're letting go and empowering others, but just continuing to do the work. I would really encourage you to have a look at Beck's website as she's changing the name to boldhr.com. And with this benchmarking tool that she's releasing, I know one thing she does really well, their research and and a, a real willingness to dig in to understand what's going on will ensure that if you are going to engage with her around this benchmarking, that it will be something that'll be brilliant that you'll be able to work with really well. Just the other one I wanted to quickly mention that she spoke about was this idea that we don't understand and that people don't understand that everyone's circumstances are different, not their uniqueness, but their circumstances. And I hear this one a lot, which is, oh, you don't understand. I work in this industry. You don't understand. Or don't you realize I work in this industry and we're different? And I think one of the things that Beck really uh, touched on today was there are about six systems in play here. So if we're trying to convince ourselves otherwise, maybe we need to start to have a good look at ourselves and go, what are we running from? What are we hiding from? If we're not prepared to go, perhaps a lot of the challenges that are going on through this area, regardless of sector, industry, whatever, are pretty much similar. Hey, if you love this one, why not rate it five stars and, and give us a little comment about why you loved it. There's so much gold in there again, as I said. If you liked it, share it with your friends. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now. <laughs>